Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 16. That's going to be our passage for this morning. Psalm 16. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 423. And as you're turning there, I just give you a little bit of background about this psalm. Psalm 16 is referred to as a mictum of David. And people aren't entirely sure what a mictum is. There's a lot of speculation uh, regarding what that word actually means. And there's actually six mictums in the book of Psalms. uh, Psalm 16 as well as Psalms 56 through 60. And in all six mictums, there seems to be a great confidence that we see in the Lord. So some commentators argue that mictum is another word for cover. Uh, Since these psalms that are written seem to be written during times of peril, some think that the idea is covering the lips in the sense of secrecy, as if they were a silent psalm given in a time of crisis. However, a lot of people actually disagree with that. Martin Luther translated a mictum as a golden jewel, which is the definition that I actually lean towards. And one commentator says that this psalm, Psalm 16, is a golden psalm, a very precious one, more to be valued by us than gold, even much fine gold, because it speaks so plainly of Christ and his resurrection, who is the true treasure hidden in the field of the Old Testament. And so Psalm 16 specifically, there are many commentators who disagree over what this psalm is actually about. Some say that it's only about David. Others say that it's only about Jesus Christ. And there's a third party that says that it's a blend of both, that there's implications for David and implications for the believer, but it also foreshadows Christ. And that's actually the party that I lean towards, actually pretty heavily lean towards, and I hope over the course of this sermon that you will see uh, just why. I believe that this is a very powerful psalm that David and the people of Israel could sing and they could find great hope and great comfort in as they sang it, while at the same time being a prophetic psalm that pointed to the greater David who would come and bring complete salvation to his people. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at this psalm, Psalm 16. A mictum of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption." You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, as we just come to your word now, just ask that you would be with us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm and um, just the implications that it has for us. 
Lord, we thank you for the prophetic message that it has that points to, to the greater David, Lord, that shows that because of your son, Lord, we can have life. And God, I just pray in these next several moments that you would be glorified, and Father, that we would be edified through your word. We thank you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. And so this psalm shows us three powerful truths for the believer that are actually going to serve as our main three points for the sermon. So in this psalm, we see the believer's place of refuge, we see their voice of confidence, and we see the path of life that is made available by Christ. So as we start off, we see the first thing, the place of refuge. This psalm starts off by David telling us exactly where he finds his refuge, which is in the Lord. Right away in verse 1, David reveals this place of refuge, saying, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David recognizes that God is our refuge and he is our strength. And this verse sounds very similar to the 46th Psalm, how that Psalm begins, saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So it's not entirely clear what David was facing as he wrote this Psalm, but it does seem that he is writing during a time of trouble, as we see him clearly pleading to the Lord for preservation. However, this isn't just a cry from David because he doubted God, but actually the complete opposite. As you continue in this psalm, you see that his confidence is completely and totally in the Lord. In verse 8, we see that because the Lord is his refuge, he will not be shaken. And as we'll see as we get to the end of the psalm, David's hope is resting in a future resurrection. So the, the tone of this psalm is not one of despair, It's not one of complaint, but it's one of hope, and it's one of joy. Despite the current troubles that David was facing, his confidence in the Lord never wavered. And this cry for protection from David seems to be in light of the idolatry that we'll see in verse 4, as well as the threat of death that we will take a look at in verse 10. And again, it's not clear that this is an imminent threat that David is facing at this particular moment as he writes, However, that certainly seemed to be a pretty common thread in how David lived his life. I mean, he's constantly on the run from those who wanted him dead. Threats to his life and the temptation towards idolatry, towards sin, were pretty typical in the life of David. And this is why David pleads to the Lord to preserve him. And this word preserve here is the Hebrew word shamar, and it means to keep or to guard, means to watch over. And this, this word shamar is used in reference to tending a flock, as we see in 1 Samuel 17, verse 20, or guarding captives that we see in 1 Kings 20, uh, verse 39. And here David is praying that the Lord will be his keeper and that he will be his guardian even through death itself. And the basis for this prayer here is one of trust. He says, for in you I take refuge. In other words, for in you I put my trust. And trust here means to seek refuge. God will keep David because David's shelter and David's security is in the Lord. And we also see that in Jesus' earthly ministry, this was true of Christ as well. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
So God preserved Christ through life and through death because Christ found his shelter in him. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, what a picture of trust and a picture of confidence that we see here. Are you able to echo the psalmist saying to God, in you I take refuge? Or do you put an asterisk next to that? You know, do we take refuge in God plus other things? Or is God our only source of refuge? I was just talking to a brother the other day, and he asked me as well as a few others. We were in a, a group, and he asked, when was the last time you took a step of faith so big that if the Lord didn't show up, you would be in trouble? And though I think people can certainly take that thinking way too far, I think especially in charismatic circles and prosperity circles, it did get me thinking, you know, is my trust and my security in Christ alone? Or is there something else that I bring with me to the table that serves as a good insurance policy if things don't go right, if things backfire? And as you read through Scripture, that's not what we see. As you read through Scripture, we see examples all over the place of people who trusted God fully, not knowing what was going to happen. You know, Abraham trusted God to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his own son because, as Hebrews tells us, he believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Esther was willing to go to the king in an attempt to save her people, trusting God and saying plainly, if I perish, I perish. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, left their father immediately as soon as Jesus called them. And we see that in Mark 1. And the ultimate example we see is of Jesus himself telling the Father on the night before he was crucified. Though in this instance, Jesus knew exactly what would happen, saying, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So if we're to truly follow Christ and obey him, he must be our refuge and he must be our supreme treasure, which we'll see in just a few moments. So David goes and turns from calling on the Lord for preservation, and now he addresses himself. And this is the psalmist's voice of confidence. So go ahead and look at verses 2 through 7. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. So meditating on his own relationship to the Lord, David recalls his confession, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. The psalmist is submitted to the God that he calls upon. And this is what David's soul had said to the Lord. David in his joy declares that Yahweh, declares that God is his master. David knew how to speak to his own soul, we see this clearly in Psalm 42, verse 5, again, where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's a good thing to speak good things to our soul. He then goes on to add that I have no good apart from you. 
And that word good, in other translations, we see it as goodness, is the Hebrew word tov. And it means a completeness. As his Lord, God supplies all of David's and all of the believer's needs. And his supply is always perfect and it's always fulfilling. And in verse 3, David turns to the saints on earth. In other words, he turns to the believers. And in reference to these saints, David says that they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David delighted in the people of God despite all of their failings, despite all of their scandals, despite their embarrassments, despite their shortcomings. In Psalm 122, David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. David's delight was in God and David's delight was in God's people. And unfortunately, I see this as a major failing for many followers of Jesus. Now, people who claim to be believers and yet they're so negative about the people of God. They're so negative about the church of God that they find themselves unable, literally find, themselves, find it impossible to delight in them. In fact, I see many people who are even ashamed of being associated with the corporate church today. And we see movements of exvangelicalism, especially among people my age as well as younger. People who no longer refer to themselves as evangelicals due to fear of association with the church. People who will say that they don't need the church, just give them Jesus. And those people that say that, do they, do they realize that Jesus associates himself so closely with his church so closely with believers that when Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Making it clear that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, Jesus says that he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is not ashamed of the corporate church. He's not ashamed of the body of believers. So why should we be? James Boyce, speaking on the church, says that this is a practical matter, for it is a way by which we can measure our relationship to the Lord. Do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? This is a simple test. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. Scripture makes it clear that if we love God, we will love his people. So from here, David goes on to speak of the unbeliever now. So verse 3 is about the faithful. Verse 4 is about the faithless. The psalmist says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And how true this statement is. Sin always promises pleasure, but it never delivers on that promise. Instead of pleasure, sin brings pain. Sin brings sorrows and hardships. And this pain includes the disappointment of turning to idols or turning to gods that will never satisfy. And it's also the pain of God's wrath against those who are opposed to him. And in David's day, the gods that these men and women ran to were Dagon and Baal. And though we may not run to Dagon or Baal today, there are certainly other idols that tempt us and try to lure us away. One of the biggest gods that we face today is described in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And the King James Version actually says that they have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Is the love of money a God that you're tempted to run after? And are you generous uh, with your money? Or are you very hesitant to give to others, to give to the church? These are questions that we must answer and be honest with ourselves if, if we are to make sure that we are not running after the God of money. And there's other idols that we must be cautious about, recognizing that they may appear subtle at first, but if we're not careful, they too will lead us astray. Consider, for instance, the overturning of Roe versus Wade just a few weeks ago. There are many people who claim to be believers saying that we should mourn the many women who will no longer be able to have an abortion. We should mourn the many women who will no longer be able to kill their baby. But should we really mourn over that? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the prophet Elijah didn't exactly mourn the prophets of Baal. And if we were to just take this verse alone, this verse right here in Psalm 16, why would we mourn over the fact that someone can no longer run after an idol that will only increase their sorrows? And yet if we're not careful, we can be lured into the trap of equivocating on biblical truths in the name of Christian love because we want people to like us and we want to fit in. That's a very dangerous trap. And in stark contrast with these idolaters stands David, who refuses to offer drink offerings of blood or to name the names of the other false gods. And this reference to the drink offerings of blood most likely referred to sacrifices that were made with blood-stained hands. And the names would refer to pagan deities. To name them is to know them. And David refuses to worship these idols, and he refuses to even confess their names. He's clinging to what he has already confessed. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. So after talking about the faithful ones, after addressing the faithless ones, David now returns to speaking about what he wants to talk about most, the Lord. So unlike the pagan gods that offered no hope, that offered no joy, offered no satisfaction, David speaks of how the Lord is his beautiful inheritance, his contentment, his joy, his wisdom, and his security. God is his goal, God is his guide, and God is the solid ground in David's life. He is David's portion, and he is David's cup. What's the difference between the two? So my portion is what belongs to me. Now, whether I enjoy it or not, it's mine. And my cup is what I actually take and make my own. So as I was, well, growing up, I was a very picky eater. And oftentimes I would go to friends' houses and their parents would serve me dinner. And what was put on my plate was my portion, so to speak. However, being the picky eater that I was, I often didn't finish everything that was on my plate. I'd been given a large portion, but my cup was what I actually ate. And oftentimes I left the dinner table hungry because even though I was given a large portion, I did not enjoy the whole portion. In fact, a lot of the parents are actually in this room right now. So <laughs> my dad's over there nodding his head. So uh, thank you for bearing with me. Um, and what I see is that many believers are this way. 
Like the picky eater who doesn't finish his plate, they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as we see in Ephesians 1, and yet their cups don't run over. In fact, their cups aren't even filled. God wants us to enjoy life by enjoying him. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And again, in chapter 15, he says, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And I love the small but very significant change that John Piper makes to the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in, in terms of their statement on the purpose of man. He says that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The Christian life is to be one of joy in the Lord and a recognition that he is all that we need. This is actually the main point of this text. This is actually the transformative truth for this morning. True, lasting contentment is found in the refuge of Christ and in the joy that the Lord provides. So David continues with the same train of thought. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. So here David blesses the Lord for the wisdom and the guidance that he gives him. The Lord gives him counsel and his heart responds by giving him assurance as he meditates in the night. God speaks and David's heart speaks. They're in harmony together. So now as we get near the end of this psalm, we see this amazing conclusion from the psalmist. So I actually titled this final section, The Path of Life, because this is where we see the beautiful connection to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and its implications for us. So let's go ahead and look at these final verses, verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Matthew Henry, commenting on the entire psalm, says that this psalm begins with expressions of devotion which may be applied to Christ, but ends with such confidence of a resurrection as must be applied to Christ. And earlier in the service, Brother Elijah actually read from Acts chapter 2 for our scripture reading. And if you didn't catch it, Peter quotes this exact psalm as a reference to Jesus. In Acts 2.25, Peter says, for David says concerning him. For David says concerning Jesus. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And in Peter's sermon, he makes clear that Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there now and look at what Peter said about this incredible psalm. So Acts 2. 25 through 32 says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all our witnesses. So as we touched on at the beginning, there's many different interpretations for Psalm 16, one of them being that this psalm has nothing to do with Christ, only David. And as I was preparing this sermon over the week and studying, that was something that really just bewildered me. That one just didn't make sense to me because Peter here is saying for a fact in Acts 2 that this psalm spoke of Christ. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I tend to lean towards the Apostle Peter than, than other commentators. <clears throat> and now, to be clear, as you've seen throughout this message, I see it as applicable to David and believers as well as a foreshadow of Christ. But I just can't see how you can say that this has nothing to do with Jesus. And so what I want to do now is just walk through each part of this section and see how this clearly speaks of Jesus. And then in light of that truth, we're going to look at some of the implications for not only David, but for believers as well. So the first thing we see is verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This right here is the life of Christ. And in the ultimate sense, only Jesus did this perfectly. He was always in the intimate presence of his Father. John 8, 29, Jesus says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This was the pathway that Christ followed, and this is the pathway that believers should strive to emulate. Then as we get into verse 9, we have the death of Christ. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. And that may sound really strange at first, but remember what was said about Jesus in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So John MacArthur notes that Jesus persevered so that he might receive the joy of accomplishment of the Father's will and exaltation. And in verse 10, we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. John MacArthur is once again helpful here in saying that these words express the confidence of the lesser David, but they were applied messianically to the resurrection of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, both by Peter in Acts chapter 2 as well as Paul in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, verse 37, Paul, speaking to the crowd, says, He whom God raised up did not see corruption. And finally, we have the triumphant victory and ascension of Jesus Christ in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 14, 6, Jesus reminds us that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Hebrews 1, 3 says that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see that this is a wonderful resurrection psalm. And that's how we see it portrayed in the New Testament. And because it is a psalm that so clearly portrays the resurrection, there is much that can be applied to not only David, but to believers as a whole. And it's not that the two are separate. They go hand in hand. It's because Christ conquered sin. Because Christ died on the cross in perfect obedience and perfect submission to the Father. And because he rose again, that we can have life in him. And the promises and the confidence that the psalmist portrays in Psalm 16 become the believer's promises and confidence as well. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the good news of Jesus. And so in light of Christ's resurrection, let's quickly take a look at the progression of this psalm because I really do think that it's something that we can't afford to miss. So David begins by speaking of the Lord as his refuge and as the one where his well-being is completely dependent upon. So from there, he says that the Lord is his portion, the Lord is his cup, and that because of the Lord, he has a beautiful inheritance. He also blesses the Lord because in him is where he finds wisdom and where he finds counsel. Then he goes on to say that he has set the Lord before him. And because of that, because he is in his presence, he will never be shaken. He echoes this again in Psalm 56, 11, saying, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so now because of all that the Lord is to the psalmist, Because he is his contentment, because he is his joy, because he is his portion, his cup, his counsel giver, his Lord, and his Savior, because of this, he says that his heart is glad and his whole being rejoices. Not only that, but also he says that his flesh is also able to dwell secure. This is crucial here. Because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, believers are able to say with confidence that their flesh dwells secure. The promise of the gospel is that because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, those who call upon his name in faith will be saved. Their flesh will dwell secure. Though their physical body will see corruption, their souls will never see corruption. They will never be abandoned, and they will dwell in eternity with the Lord. And this is the confidence that believers can have. Brother Larry mentioned that Bob uh, Gerlach, one of our members at Webster Bible, just went home to be with the Lord Friday night around 11 o'clock. And though we are sad to hear of his passing, we can rejoice knowing that he is in the presence of his Savior. And anyone who has seen Bob over these last few weeks, can attest to the fact that he died in peace. He died in the confidence that he would be with his Savior the moment he left this earth. And that's the confidence, and that is the reward that the gospel brings to believers. 
However, that's also the warning that the gospel brings to a dying world. Because the Bible makes clear that if you never turn from your sins, and you never trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that the opposite is true. Your flesh does not dwell secure. You will face corruption. Last week, one of our elders, Bob Willio, gave a sermon on the reality of hell. This is a serious warning to unbelievers. I was just talking with someone the other day, and they asked me if there was any special trick that they could do where minutes before they uh, they die, they experience death, they could just say this magic prayer, and they would be saved. They're asking, is there anything I can do like that right before I go? Can I just real quick say, my bad, sorry, Lord, I live for me, but now I want to live for you right before I experience death. And he kind of said it jokingly, kind of said it mockingly. Uh, This was not a believer. But the question, and I just looked him straight in the face and just with, he was laughing, I was not, because it is not a laughing matter. I said, absolutely not. No, no, there is not any special trick. We serve a God who will not be mocked. We serve a God that you can't trick. All throughout scripture, we see an urgency for repentance. We do not know when our last breath will be. Life in this world may end without a warning. Steve Lawson notes that death rarely sends its advance notice. This is why if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you'll recognize your need for him and that you'll turn to him in faith, recognizing that he is the only way to life. And we don't have to look any further than verse 11 to see this truth. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Death poses no threat to believers because we enjoy great blessings and great fellowship with the Lord. Not only in this life to come, but even now we enjoy fellowship with Christ. John Piper, going back to that quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We don't just enjoy him once we get into eternity. We can enjoy him now, enjoy his presence, enjoy fellowship with him now. And God will not permit death and the grave to interrupt our fellowship with him. This expression of faith is only possible because Jesus has conquered death and he has risen to become the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And this is where our contentment lies. True, lasting contentment is found in the refuge of Christ and the joy that the Lord provides. Our contentment, our satisfaction, our joy, our worth is not found in anything of us. It is only found in Christ. And I pray that this truth will ring true in your hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you be with us today? God, I pray that your truth would ring true in our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of your word and to the joy of your presence. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We ask that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this now in your name. Amen.